Welcome to Power Play. I'm Michael Couture. Today, the provincial push for health funding. It's not about here's one chunk of money. It's about how can we plan for proper health care for our backlog surgeries for the next 10, 15 years. Our premiers want cash without conditions, but Ottawa says it won't sign a blank check. We'll talk about next steps with Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson and a grieving family's call for action. The daughters of a woman allegedly murdered by a serial killer want police to search for their mother's remains. We'll talk to Cambria Harris, Harris about her mother's legacy and her fight for justice. And the critical race to protect our critical minerals. Can Canada edge out global competition? We'll ask Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. On average, provinces and territories are running surpluses, surpluses. So if it were dollars, it wouldn't be important to talk to the federal government. They would have all the, the dollars needed to invest in, in health care. Well, that was Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos pushing back on premiers as they demand more health care money from Ottawa. Today, Canada's premiers met virtually to discuss the growing crisis in Canada's health care system. They reiterated their calls for the federal government to increase their share of the Canada health transfer from 22% to 35% and to maintain that level over time. But Duclos says it doesn't make sense to talk numbers if the parties don't want to talk about final outcomes first. So are the federal government and premiers locked in a cash-without-conditions stalemate? Let's find out. And joining me now is Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson. Premier Stephenson, thank you so much for making the time today. Now, the provinces have been very clear. You want the Canada health transfer to increase from 22% up to 35% with indexation of 6%. Today, Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos said it doesn't make sense to talk about the numbers until you agree on the outcomes. Is that a conversation you're willing to have first? Well, in order to have that conversation, we need to sit down at the table and have that discussion. And so we have put our offer on the table. Uh, we haven't seen anything from the federal government yet, but uh, I, I'm, I, I'm hoping that we can get to the table with the prime minister early in the new year before they set their budgets. I know he's already indicated a, a willingness to move on the Canada health transfer. Uh, and so we just need to sit down and have that discussion. On that specifically, the health ministers did have a meeting last month and they couldn't move the ball any further ahead. What more can be accomplished by actually having the premiers and the prime minister around a table? Well, this is really a discussion that needs to take place. This is about funding and it needs to take place at the first minister's meeting in, in uh, early in the new year prior to the federal government setting their budget. It's very critical that we are the ones that are sitting down and having that, that discussion. Uh, I know there was some discussion at the, the health minister's table. There was no offer put on the table, so we need to be very clear about that. There has been no offer put on the table by the federal government yet. We have put our offer on the table. We need to sit down now and have that discussion. Canadians expect us to, to sit down and work together uh, as different levels of government to, to talk about what is arguably one of the most important issues that we're facing in our country right now in health care. But Premier, how does that conversation move forward if the Prime Minister is sitting there as opposed to the health ministers who usually do a lot of that hard work? Well, the Prime Minister makes the decisions for the federal government and so I can think of no better person to sit down with us than him. 
Uh, that's the table that it needs to take place in our first minister, minister's meeting, um, and uh, we look forward to having that discussion with him early in the new year. So you've been firm in your call for increased funding without strings attached, but if that's the only roadblock to more money and better health care, are you willing to sit back and watch while your citizens live through a health care crisis? So we are obviously moving forward with uh, delivering health care in each of our jurisdictions right across the country. That has not stopped. What we need to do is ensure that there's predictable and stable and long-term funding, uh, a partner at the table with us in the federal government. So that's what this is all about. I was going to ask you, though, are we moving to a place where we could see 13 separate health care deals between the provinces and territories, just like, like we saw for that national child care program? I hope we're not moving in that direction. I think it's very important that we sit down and have this discussion about the future of, uh, of funding with, with health care. We need to have the federal government back at the table as a true partner. This used to be a 50-50 funding. Uh, that's now dwindled down to 22% on behalf of the federal government. That is not sustainable for the long term as, as costs continue to rise. Um, and, you know, we can't just leave it uh, to the provinces. We need to have the federal government at the table with us. I know I said it, you said it's something you're not open to, but if that's what actually gets the ball forward, I mean, every province has said that their needs are different, and that's why they don't want the strings attached. So if the government comes to the table and says, we're going to negotiate separate deals with each province, would that not achieve a goal? Well, I think what we what we need to do is ensure that you know we have no problem being accountable and transparent in the way of you know as as provinces and territories, uh, we are accountable every day. Uh, we are the ones who deliver the healthcare services within our provinces and territories. We have no problem with that whatsoever. So if they're calling on accountability, we agree. I wanted to move to a different subject now, that search of the three Indigenous women believed to be murdered by a Winnipeg man who's facing a total four murder charges. Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron have yet, and a yet-to-be-identified woman called uh, Buffalo Woman. They're believed to be in that Prairie Green landfill, um, and Winnipeg police who so far have said that they won't search the landfill. Yesterday, you and Mary Gillingham announced that the landfill operations would be paused while you assess those next steps. What's on the table right now in terms of those next steps? So we have worked uh, very closely with the owner and operator of the landfill who has put a stop to any more trucks coming and, and dumping at the landfill. Um, Mayor Gillingham and I were out uh, yesterday just calling for that halt to see you know, where we go from here and we'll sit down and have those discussions. What has happened is an absolutely horrific tragedy that took place and these these women these families it is absolutely tragic and we need to ensure that we put things in place that this never happens again what do you say to the families who want their loved ones to be looked for and for their bodies to be brought home we are here for you we want to work with you this is an absolutely horrific tragedy that has taken place it's not acceptable, and we want to make sure that, we, that they know that we are here for them. And I know it's not for politicians to direct police services, but would you like to see the RCMP come in to take this over? Well, again, I, I'm not going to direct the police services. Um, you know, again, we'll, we'll continue to work together in, in whatever way we can to help these, these families who are going through just a horrific time right now. And I just want to, again, say to them that our thoughts and our prayers are with them right now, and uh, we are here for them. 
Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, thank you so much for taking the time today. We appreciate this. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. And to be clear, Winnipeg police say they don't know the whereabouts of a fourth victim known as Buffalo Woman. They believe that woman was killed around March 15th of this year. The daughters of Morgan Harris were in Ottawa earlier this week fighting for justice for their mother. Cambria called for action, questioning why she had to travel all the way to Ottawa to do so. They believe that they are in the Prairie Green landfill and the police won't do anything. And they say that they can't search because it's not feasible. Is human life not feasible? Time and time again, our Indigenous women and brothers and sisters have to come here and we have to shout and we have to raise our voices begging for change and begging for justice for our people. And that is wrong. I should not have to stand here today and I should not have to come here and be so mad and beg and beg so that you will find and bring our loved ones home. And joining me now is Cambria Harris. Cambria, thank you so much for making the time today. And first of all, our condolences to you and your family. Mm-hmm. I wanted to first ask you, uh, you were listening in there to our conversation with Heather Stephenson. She had said um, that we are here for you. We want to work with you. Is that enough for you? Um. You know, you can you can say all the words you want, but it's when you put those actions into place that I'll start to believe you and I'll take it apart. So, you know, if you if you say you're here for me, then I will absolutely accept your help and I will accept whatever help that might come along the way so that we can bring these women home. I wanted to ask you first off here, what do you want people to know about your mother? My mother, she... Grew up on the streets majority of her life. Um, she was in and out of homeless shelters and treatment centers. And society handed her the wrong cards and unfairly. And, you know, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. We saw it start with residential schools and then move on to the child welfare system, you know, the 60s scoop. And children are still getting taken today. And it's horrible. And, you know, my mother went through it all. and. She didn't deserve it, and I wanted to be remembered as, like, a strong, resilient woman, and she fought to survive. And how is your family dealing with all of this right now? One can only imagine the difficulties that you're going through. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking, and it's shocking that, you know, I needed to go all the way down to Parliament to beg for the world to hear my voice, and so that I can just ask to bring my loved ones home because they don't deserve to sit in the landfill. Um, if they want me to go pay my respects, they expect me to go to a landfill. That's, that's wrong. So we need to change that and either bring them home or turn that place into a memorial. And, you know, yes, we have a pause for now, but there, there's still a lot more to be done and we're not going to stop there. And, and part of what you've asked to be done was to call for police chief Danny Smythe's uh, resignation. Why do you think that that's important? Um, I think it's important because, you know, over the years, we've asked over and over for something to change. And, you know, they had a PowerPoint pulling all these statistics and stuff. But if you're able to pull the statistics, then why aren't you able to use them and change something? And that's what I don't understand. Um, 
And like my sister said, if you don't feel like you're capable of finding them, then why are you not reaching out to other places in the world that you know has those resources to be able to find these women? No matter how hard or how big and difficult the task may seem, that's what they're making it seem like. They're making it seem like these women are a task and, and they're not. They deserve to come home. Since the operations were paused at the landfill, have you heard from police to, to discuss what might be a next step? Well, absolutely not. I haven't heard from them once since I came to Parliament. Um, you know, they held their press conference and we've, we've asked publicly and we've said we will try to meet a healthy compromise with you. But, you know, for it to just say it's a cold case and you're not going to search, we won't stand for that. So they've had more than enough chances and I've got more than enough angry. So now I'm going to take it into my own hands. And part of that was coming to Ottawa. And when you were here, you did speak with the prime minister. What did you say to him and what did he say to you? So the first thing I mentioned was he was wearing a red beaded missing and murdered indigenous woman's dress. And I had one as well because we were gifted them from someone in the conference. And I said, like, look, we're matching. And he said, yes, but for all the wrong reasons. And, you know, I'm sad that we have to meet under circumstances like this. And, like, my heart goes out to you and I commend you for your bravery. And I told him, um, there's a major flaw in the system. My mother went missing in May and there was an article released. And we saw in the conference, they admitted to knowing that there were remains of police being in the landfill since June. And they didn't take a sample from me until September. And they didn't identify her until December 1st. So they gave you the timeline. If you look at it, that's three to five months too late. And that's wrong. So that something seriously needs to change and something seriously needs to get fixed. Do you have faith in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government to make that change that you're calling for? Um, yeah, yeah, I would hope so now that I come out publicly and, you know, I've had to grieve in front of the world and I shouldn't have to put my heart out like that. I shouldn't have to put my heart and soul into these other women's voices and making sure that they're heard. And it should have been done a long time ago, honestly. And I'm sad that it had to come to this point. So I'm hoping that he does hold up to his word. And if he doesn't, then we already have other people looking into what it would take to get a search done. What do you hope will happen in, in the days and weeks going forward, especially with your mom's case? Um, well, I'm hoping that we're going to start looking into the logistics of what it would take to have search done, which is what my chief, Tyron Wilson, had said from Long Pike First Nation at the conference calling for his resignation. And he said, it's like, we're going to look into it. We don't know how much it's going to cost, what it's going to take, but we're going to get it done. And that's a promise because we've lost one too many women and it's got to end. We need to break the cycle of violence. Very well said. Cambria Harris, thank you so much for your time this evening. We appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, Canadians trapped in paradise and accusations of an international drug smuggling ring. W5's Avery Haynes brings us the harrowing tale of a Canadian flight crew detained in the Caribbean. That's next on Power Play. It 
It was a case of a dozen Canadians detained in the Dominican Republic in what was described as deplorable conditions. The Canadian flight crew and seven passengers were put in jail after tens of millions of dollars worth of cocaine was found in duffel bags in the cargo compartment of a plane they were taking back to Canada. This weekend, CTV's investigative program, W5, documents the story of a Canadian flight that was detained in the Dominican Republic for nearly eight months. Have a look at this. Keep your eye on the timestamp in the top left corner. It's 3.26 in the morning. And there it skipped the 4.09. Okay, wait, so it went from 3.26 to 4.09. Yeah, it's crazy. 43 minutes edited out of the surveillance video. That video is key in answering the question, how could a dozen Canadians be held for such a long time without charges being laid. We're going to bring in W5's managing editor, Avery Haynes, for more on this. Avery, this is a wild story. How could they have been detained for so long without being charged? Well, the short answer is the laws in the Dominican Republic are vastly different than they are in this country. There they can hold you for 12 months. They can even extend that just based on an accusation. And you mentioned that that video was key. Uh, It was key in an unusual way because the prosecutor, uh, the district attorney in the Dominican Republic was well aware that that edited video had key moments taken out that show that it was a Punta Cana airport uh, truck that pulled up and that the bags were loaded into the plane at a time when all of the passengers and the crew were accounted for. So that is evidence that actually shows that they could not have been involved in at least physically putting the drugs on the plane, and yet still they were held. They were kept for nine days in jail, the the crew, uh, the passengers, for about 21 days before they got bail. And uh, when they were released on bail, the judge at the time said there was no evidence to hold them, and yet still the government did hold them for eight months. And when they were out of the blue, got a phone call at nine o'clock one night while we were there in the Dominican Republic from the district attorney's office saying, we're dropping the case. Uh, There was, again, no reason given beyond the fact that there was no evidence. It's just so shocking. And we overuse the term out of a movie, but it really is. I, I wanted to ask you about the Canadian government's involvement. Did they get involved to help get these people out of Dominican Republic? Well, if they did, they sure aren't bragging about it. You know, I'm looking at uh, U.S. President Biden talking about uh, Brittany Griner being released, condemning uh, Russia for the detainment and then welcoming her home. The Canadians flew home last week and there wasn't a peep from the foreign affairs minister who we tried repeatedly to get into our documentary. She refused every request for an interview. Nothing from Prime Minister Trudeau. The transport minister did uh, put out a tweet with a photo of them at the airport saying welcome home. But the CEO of Pivot Air firmly believes, because the government knew about that evidence, clearing them of being directly involved with putting the drugs on months ago, clearly believes that that crew languished, along with the passengers, for three to four months longer than they needed to uh, because of complete inaction. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of their detainment, Trudeau is at a conference, the Summit of Americas in California, sitting down with a meeting with the president of the Dominican Republic. And there's this banter about how great it is to travel to the Dominican Republic while 12 Canadians are being detained there. Also during their detainment, 
two miners are trapped for 10 days underground in the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican government requests support from Canada. And Canada flies over all kinds of supplies, tweeting out photographs of Canadian flags, sending equipment to help free two Dominicans who are trapped. And the crew says they did absolutely nothing for us that we know of to free 12 Canadians who were trapped without charges being laid. Not one of these 12 Canadians was even interviewed during that eight months of detainment. Just an incredible story. W5's managing editor, Avery Haynes. Thank you so much for this, Avery. Thank you. You can catch that story of the detained Canadian flight this Saturday at 7 p.m. on CTV. The program also airs on CTV News Channel on Sunday at 7 p.m. Now here is some other news you need to know. Members of the Parti Québécois will now be allowed into Quebec's legislature. The National Assembly just passed a law ending the requirement for members to swear an oath to the king. The Coalition Avenir Québec government tabled a bill on Tuesday making the oath optional. The bill was fast-tracked by all parties to have it adopted quickly. The change means that members of Quebec's legislature only have to swear an oath to the people of Quebec to be sworn in as members of the legislature. After spending nearly 10 months detained in Russia, U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner has been freed and is safely on U.S. soil after a high-profile prisoner swap. Griner's plane landed this morning in Texas, where she underwent a routine evaluation. She was released yesterday in exchange for one of the world's most prolific arms dealers, Victor Bout. He's held in American prison for about... 12 years. The swap was made at an airport in United Arab Emirates. And the White House is defending its decision to release him. The security breach linked to Ontario's COVID-19 vaccine portal has exposed the personal information of about 360,000 people in the province. The province says most of the cases involve only names and phone numbers. Those impacted by the breach will start receiving email notices today. Back in November of 2001, the Ontario Provincial Police launched an investigation after reports surfaced of spam text messages received by people who scheduled appointments or accessed vaccine certificates through the portal. Since then, investigators have been working towards determining the scale and impact of the breach. Well, coming up, an impasse over health care funding in Canada. What can be done to solve the standoff between premiers and the federal government? Our Friday panel of strategists will dig into that next on Power Play. We have put a proposal on the table for the federal government and, and now, you know, we, we have not received anything from them whatsoever at all. It doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable to see the federal government having only 22% of the financing while they receive 40% of revenues. It's not about here's one chunk of money. It's about how can we plan for proper health care for our backlog surgeries for the next 10, 15 years. So are we in a health care blame game? Well, Canada's Premier has presented a united front today as they renewed their push for a meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to talk about health care funding comes as nearly every province is struggling with a health care crisis. 
and that some premiers are running surpluses and handing out checks to their residents. Also, which guns are the Liberals really targeting with the amendments to Bill 21? Well, the Conservatives and NDP say that hunters are being unfairly targeted. So was this the government's intent all along, or are they just doing a bad job of explaining the bill and the amendment? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. We have Greg McEachran from Proof Strategies. He leans Liberal. Melanie Paradis is the president of Texture Communications. She was also the director of communications for former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. And in studio with us is National Director of the NDP, Anne McGrath. Greg, we're going to start with you. Now this whole debate over the health care funding, and there's this united front once again by the premiers to have this meeting with the prime minister. It sounds like we're headed for a showdown. They don't want to talk numbers before they talk outcomes. Does the prime minister have no other choice but to meet with them? Well, there's also some some uh, opportunity for the prime minister in in terms of meeting with premiers. He's not somebody who is against meeting with them. He met with two today: the premier of Northwest Territory, the um, my Saint of X friend Sandy Silver from the Yukon. They both had meetings today. I think there were other meetings this week. So I don't think that's the issue. I I think when you say united front, I think that. This may be the only thing that the premiers want, would unite on is the meeting. Some of their demands, I don't think they all agree on. And, you know, if you look at what you alluded to, I, I live in Ontario. I got a couple of hundred bucks back for my license plate stickers. It was nice, Mike, but I don't really need it. Uh, in Saskatchewan, every person over the age of 18, doesn't matter how rich you are, you're going to get $500. But those premiers are telling the prime minister that they are broke when it comes to health care. You mentioned as well, some of them are sitting on surpluses. Some of them are sitting on money that was left over from, from COVID that wasn't spent. So it's really hard to take them, them seriously. And, and, you know, and, and you, you really at a time like this when we're hearing about the number of children, the number of elderly that are being hospitalized, uh, you really want the, the politics taken out of it. And, it. and it felt very political. I mean, Scott Moe said we can't negotiate with ourselves, but yet they did that a few weeks ago during the meeting where they were negotiating with Minister Duclos, mm -hmm. and yet a press release went out saying that the negotiations had ended, and it appeared you know, from some things I'd seen on, on Twitter that that press release had been written far in advance. So I think if we get everybody in the room and it takes some of the politics out, great. Melanie, do you think this will change once everybody's in the room? And I, and I wanted to bring up what Greg said there. You know, I mean, some of these premiers are running surpluses and handing out checks to their citizens. So can you kind of see why the federal government wants some accountability on the money front? No, as the premiers made very clear today, their accountability is to their electorate, to their people. Like, it, what's so frustrating to me about this is this has been going on for years. When I was the director of communications to Aaron O'Toole two years ago, we were urging, Aaron O'Toole was urging the Prime Minister to get this resolved, to work with the premiers from coast to coast to get stable and increased funding. And today, Pierre Polyev was out saying exactly the same thing, calling on the Liberal Prime Minister to provide stable and increased funding to the premiers for health care. This is the number one issue in the country right now. It's when we see the polling, people are just as worried about the health care crisis across the country as they are about affordability and the economy. People understand, like when I was at the salon this week and all people were talking about was how sick their kids have been. My kid has been sick multiple times this season and they're worried. Parents are really worried about what's going to happen if we have to take our kid to the hospital. And so it's, this has been going on for years and it's time for this government to, for this liberal federal government to step up and get a deal done with these premiers. You know what? I'll give them credit. 
they've gotten deals done with these premiers before. So why not on health care? Why not? Yeah, and to that point, Anne, I mean, Heather Stephenson, when I asked the Manitoba Premier, are we headed for 13 separate deals like we saw in childcare? She says she doesn't know. She hopes that we're not. But do you think that's where this may end up? Well, I've seen that happen. I mean, you know, I understand why the Prime Minister wouldn't want to meet with the Premiers. They, it is a bit of a gang-up, because the mm. only thing that the Premiers can agree on is that they want more money from Ottawa. So, for sure, I understand that. But I do believe, he ha- I think you're right, he has no choice. I think that we're at a situation right now that is so dire. Uh, I mean, Melanie's right. Like, if you are the parent of a small child, you will end up, at some point, in an emergency ward. Right. Even if you have a, perf- a really healthy child, you do end up in emergency wards. And it is critical right now. It's awful. We've got the Red Cross coming in to help out the Children's Hospital here, here in Ottawa. I mean, the Red Cross is a disaster relief. What are they doing? Setting up mash tents outside right. hospitals. It's horrible, horrible what's happening uh, with, with, with kids' health care. So I think that we're in a, at, a, at a point where uh, you can't afford to kind of just stand your ground and not move. So I think that the Prime Minister either has to meet with the Premiers, and, and I would recommend that that's what happened right, right now, but either way, something has to happen. We can't uh, and I've heard that they were talking about a meeting in the new year. I think the new year is too late. I think that the situation right. is so bad right now. Something has to happen right now. And the problems in healthcare uh, are beyond just a, a, a money fix at the moment. There's things around health, human resources, right. the lack of doctors and nurses, the burnout of the healthcare professionals. There's so much to do. And I think it's probably the number one issue in the country right now. I don't think you can sort of stand, stand on principle and say, well, I don't want to meet with them because they're just going to gang up on me. Yeah. Another issue that I want to tackle, I've only got about two minutes for it, but Greg, I'll get you on C21. And what has happened with this bill and the amendments, um, the fact that, you know, you now have both the Conservatives and NDP calling on the government saying, now you are targeting sports shooters and hunters. Is this a bad amendment that the Liberals have introduced or just bad communication around it? And if you can keep it to 30 seconds, I'll get everybody in. Well, to correct you, it's not just Conservatives and Democrats. It's also backbench Liberals. So that tells you you have a problem. I have been on this panel numerous times over the years, and I hate talking about liberals and, and guns because everyone wants this. Um, it was the, the government was elected on this, but the communication is terrible on this, mm-hmm. and this is where it gets bogged down. And, Melanie, it, just to bring just you in here, I mean, this is something... Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not just the communication. It's, it's what's actually in this amendment as well. And, and thank you to Raquel Dancho, and to the Conservative Caucus um, for digging into this at, and at, at committee, for the members of the committee as well, for, for doing the research and, um, and spending countless hours reviewing the lists and the materials that were provided by the Liberals um, that will impact 2 million hunters, including First Nations, Métis, and Inuit hunters across the country. Um, this is the largest ban yeah, no, on hunting yeah, rifles but, but in Canadian history. And see, this is, hold, on, hold on, Greg, hold on. Yeah, but Look. this is where it gets off because it's that's not always the case and there's a generalization there there's a lot of the issue is the gun is fine it's the augmentation okay and and i think what, Look, what I, I gotta bring in yeah i gotta bring in greg hold on i gotta bring in they had a bill that could pass there were there was agreement on the freeze on handguns and then at the last minute after second reading, which is very unusual, they introduced a pile of amendments that it looks like they hadn't even read before they introduced them. Right. And they may have inadvertently stumbled into uh, uh, going after the wrong people on this. But they made a mistake, and I think they have to fix it. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I, I made the mistake of, unfortunately, leaving this to the last subject. But Anne McGrath, Melanie Parody, Greg McEachran, thank you for joining us. We appreciate that. We do have an update in from Winnipeg's police chief, 
Danny Smythe, he has responded to the calls for his resignation, saying, quote, I'm supportive of further exploring whether it is possible to recover the remains of Mercedes Myron and Morgan Harris. I will work with whomever the mayor assigns to this important initiative. As the chief of police, I am committed to securing a criminal conviction for these heinous crimes. I want justice for Rebecca Mercedes Morgan and Buffalo woman. I will not be resigning. That again from the Winnipeg police chief. Well, coming up, a new strategy for critical minerals in this country. Canada is in a race to secure our own components to build batteries and electric vehicles. So what is this country doing to give Canada an edge? We'll talk about that with Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson right after this. The race is on to secure the globe's supply of critical minerals. It's all in the more important. It's all the more important in this country, as ours is heading towards a net zero future, and it means the demand for lithium, nickel, and cobalt has skyrocketed. They're crucial elements in building batteries, electric vehicles, solar panels, computer chips, and weapons. Today, the federal government unveiled their critical minerals strategy. billion, that was already set aside for all of this in last year's, this year's budget. But now we know the goals. The strategy seeks to accelerate project exploration and development by providing financial and administrative supports, advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples through meaningful partnership on projects, and to ensure strong environmental management. So how does today's critical mineral strategy give Canada the edge over other countries? Let's ask Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, who is joining us from Vancouver. Welcome, Minister. Now, part of this strategy has a security aspect to it. Now, given what happened this week with Sinclair Technologies and how hundreds of projects already have, that are already in development, have foreign investors, will any of the projects that we have now have to be reviewed under a national security lens? Well, certainly the national security lens is important, as, as, uh, as you noted in the intro. I mean, this is a generational economic opportunity for this country, but we have to be thoughtful about how we, uh, how we prosecute it. I think you saw steps in that direction um, a couple of weeks ago when we uh, made the decision not to allow three, three uh, investments from Chinese firms that were linked to the state um, to come to Canada. Um, and uh, Minister Champagne has announced more in the way of review of foreign investments going forward. That is, uh, that is critically important. Nobody wants to be in the position Germany is in vis-a-vis Russia in terms of dependence on oil and gas. Um, we don't want to fall into that situation with China and, uh, and critical minerals. So it is critically important that we move forward. Uh, we are certainly putting in place restrictions on Chinese direct investment that are companies linked to the state. But we are having a broader conversation as well around things like offtakes from mines, etc. So, yes, it's, uh, it's clearly a critically important part of the strategy. So how much of that, when you were talking about there and how uh, these Chinese firms were forced to divest their holdings in the three Canadian lithium mining companies, how much of that is a factor in the race against China um, for critical minerals in this strategy? Well, it's important. I mean, look, there is no energy transition without significant additional critical mineral 
those resources. Um, you cannot have enough electric vehicles that use batteries, that use cobalt and, and lithium and a range of other materials. You don't have enough solar panels. You don't have enough uh, wind turbines. Um, so for those of us who are committed to fighting climate change, we need to find ways to expedite the development of critical minerals resources and to actually have them processed within within our borders. But it's also the case that Western countries in the in the current geopolitical environment need to ensure that we are not vulnerable to be to, to have critical um, resources used as a as a bargaining chip. That means we need to build out our own capability. And I would say the opportunity is enormous. In the past, perhaps countries like Australia and Canada have seen each other as competitors in the mining market. I would say we see each other now as collaborators because the market opportunity and the market need is so huge that we need to be figuring out ways to do things better. And there are things we can learn from the Australians and there are things that they can certainly learn from us. I wanted to ask you, there's a phrase that Wayne Gretzky used to often say, go where the puck is going to be. How much of this strategy is about that when you consider how valuable critical minerals will be? As we sketched out, they're going to be used in so many things going forward. Well, it's absolutely skate to where the puck is going. I think increasingly we are seeing that puck start to move. Um, you know, we, we, we think about some of the things that we need. In Canada, we have a regulation that says that we will not sell internal combustion engines after 2035. That means every car uh, that is available on the lot is going to need a significant amount of critical minerals of the electric vehicles that are on the lot. I, I drive a hydrogen car, so maybe a little bit less there. Um, but significant amounts of critical minerals. Um, and, uh, and so we need to be thinking forward about how we actually ensure that we have access to that. But we need to be thinking about this as a much broader economic strategy. It's not just about extracting minerals and providing them to others to process. It's about us processing our own materials in this country and refining them. It's about us building the batteries. It's about us um, building the electric vehicles and doing the recycling of, uh, of critical minerals coming off of batteries and other products. This is a generational economic opportunity for Canada that actually goes coast to coast to coast. Every region has an interest in this. It is the subject of conversations at every one of the, uh, the, the, the uh, energy and, uh, and resource tables that I set up with provinces and territories. This is, um, this is really a good news story for Canada, and it is a huge, huge opportunity for us as we transition to a low-carbon future. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate this. Thank you very much. Still to come, from a political debate over gun control to an RCMP contract under the spotlight, it's been another busy week in politics. That means the press gallery will be back here with their political plays and misplays when Power Play returns. We had an RCMP contract that prompted security concerns and the Liberals facing cross-party criticism over an amendment to their gun control legislation. So in this week of politics, who had plays and misplays? I don't want to ruin any surprises here, but they're all misplays. And who's giving them out? CTV senior digital, digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Aiello. You know her because she writes the Capital Dispatch newsletter. We all read it. Who do we read as well? Well, Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacourt from Earnscliff. Read anything that he writes on Twitter. That's Greg Weston. Nice to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. Now, in the prompter, it says uh, the scripts that you guys are a bunch of scrooges. I don't believe whoever wrote that, and I'm not going to say that. Um, Rachel, you've got one. It's Diane Le Boutelier, National Revenue Minister, 
who obviously everybody knows all the time. <laughs> but go ahead with yours. So the revenue minister is getting my misplay this week for how she handled her response to the Auditor General's report into the federal government's COVID benefits, mm -hmm. uh, finding obviously that there is, I'd say, generously lacking follow-up on some of the applications. Uh, but what was a misplay for me was how she took this, you know, a time you could disagree with the report, uh, but that's not what she did. What she did was question the integrity of the Auditor General, suggesting that this whole audit was politically motivated or pressured by the opposition, which just plainly is not true. This was built into the legislation that this audit had to happen. So for her to take this step this week, I just thought it was really curious. And adding to that, when you've got the party of we're going to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada coming to your defense in the case of the Auditor General, it's just it was an interesting dichotomy to see the Liberals being the ones this week kind of questioning the integrity of an officer of parliament. Susan, is an apology in order for the Auditor General? Yeah, well, I, I agree with Rachel. It's it's off side mm -hmm. to do this. I, it does because I'm old. <laughs> I, it does remind me of during the sponsorship um, drama of right. the Jean Chrétien years. The, the the government then, the Liberal government then, started to say things like, "Who audits the Auditor General?" Because right. the Auditor General is getting a little too close to them. But we haven't seen that, and it isn't exactly on brand Trudeau to follow in that. Uh, tradition as well. So I, I think there are tons of things that you could say about that Auditor General's report. There are, there are ways in which, you know, you don't want to scare people that the government's going to come after you and right. take all your money away. And But uh, like an internal fight between the Auditor General and the Canadian uh, Revenue Minister is not exactly the response I was expecting. I didn't have that on my bingo card. <laughs> no. Um, no. Greg, I was going to ask you, how important is it for Canadians to have trust in the EG? Well, it is. Look, you have... The revenue minister, which uh, nothing personal, but is probably the most unpopular position in in government. You, you don't say. There aren't a whole lot of say. Canadians who, who love them. I, I, of course, admire them greatly. Right. But yeah, um, uh, going up against probably one of the most trusted figures in government, who's the auditor general. And you just are not going to win that fight. It's a stupid thing to do. I can't believe that she was allowed to do it. Uh, I nobody would have said that is a really good idea. You right. just don't win on that one. Yeah, and speaking of not winning, <clears throat> Susan, you've got one for the Liberals on the ongoing gun control debate. Yeah, and I see you mentioned that in the Strats panel as yeah. well, and, and it's been bubbling around not just this week. But it's been a while since I've been in school, but um, this week what they did with the guns felt a little like those essays that you jam in before the end of term, then you don't right. really, it looked like somebody said, right before Christmas, we better get this done. And it doesn't matter what it looks like. And maybe we'll get a D, but at least we got it done. Right. And I give them a D. It's, uh, it, it, you even heard Greg McEachern, a, a loyal liberal saying, this looks like a mess. And it's not just a communications mess. It's, uh, it's sloppy. And, uh, a government that's in power for seven years should not be sloppy, especially not a, a, an issue such as guns. It's, uh, yeah. it, it, it was a big and important week, the anniversary of the call Polytechnique, and they messed it up. And now they're having to backslide. There's sort of a theme this week. Yeah. And, spoiler alert for Greg. Yeah, but across party lines that there was criticism here. Yeah, there is, and and you kind of have to wonder whether the purpose of this was to stir um, controversy. This is one of those wedge issues that mm -hmm. you throw it out there crank it up and you are going to get a big divide between the conservatives and the, and the liberals on this guaranteed. Um, I, in, 
maybe this is pushing it too far, but we have a, a by-election, an urban by-election right. coming up, uh, and there's nothing that turns off urban voters more than um, people who love guns. So Yeah, and Rachel, it got a conservative MP kicked out of the House, Rachel, uh, Raquel Dancho. Yeah, and so next week what I'm going to be looking for is there's going to be another committee meeting where the committee that was doing the clause-by-clause -clause amendments on this are probably going to be asking to hear from some more witnesses on the potential impacts of this amendment. I see this as what the Prime Minister said this week of their fine-tuning. They're kind of having to claw this back and trying to do it in a way that's saving face. But I think to Greg's point, it's one thing to try to throw out an issue and kind of, you know, rile up both sides, but the facts have to be on your side in order for that to be effective. And clearly there's been serious questions about this. No, it's fine. It's all good everything in here is not what the Conservatives say. Obviously, now the Liberals are admitting that maybe wasn't the best line. So I, it'll be a hot fight next week before the House rises. I don't think the bill is going to pass, uh, certainly before the new year. Can't wait. Greg, your misplays on that RCMP contract with Sinclair Technologies. Tell me about that. You know, this is one of those things, Michael, where you just kind of see this and, and uh, you know, in my previous life, I spent an awful lot of time covering stories about Chinese cyber spying. Mm -hmm. um, that still in uh, 2022, we have situations where a government would hire a Chinese link company to come in and provide technology for the secure RCMP communication system. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, you know, it, it's sloppy. It's um, uh, more than anything, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the government. It's embarrassing for, for Canada as well. These are the kind of issues where Canada's allies look at Canada and go, I, are you guys going to yeah. get with the program of, of you know, we all have to work together? Um, cybersecurity is number one threat uh, against our national security. They've got to tighten their ship. Yeah, I, and I've got to try and tighten this up. I've got about a minute left. But Susan, you have Minister Champagne who comes out on that day with this new legislation trying to protect it. Is this like closing the door behind the, the horses in the barn? Yeah, I was going to say, you know who else thinks this was a misplay was the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> uh, he certainly did not look pleased. I linked it in my head to the displeasure that they've been uh, expressing during the, the convoy hearings to the RCMP in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether those two are connected or not, I think people will, will be making the connection. Rachel. The other part of this I thought was very curious is their reliance repeatedly on the independent public service, kind of putting this on the independent right. public service. Yeah. Guys, like, pick a lane this week. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I'm curious to see how that plays out. To me, it's just reading as they're trying to not take responsibility. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with the federal government and the prime minister. And woe for the public service because, I mean, how does that feel with all those tire tracks on them, right, with the bus being, um, them being thrown into the bus? <laughs> Rachel, Susan, Greg, thank you all. I appreciate it once again. Have a great weekend. That is your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We will be right back here on Monday. Until then, have a great night and a great weekend.